Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Today's show, DuPont's Contaminated Mountain Reclaimed. It's the story of the contaminated communities surrounding the zinc smelter plant near Clarksburg, West Virginia, which resulted in a $381 million award in the class action suit captioned Perrine versus DuPont. My guest today, it's just a pleasure to have her on the show, Carol Moore, is the lead investigator on this case that resulted in this verdict against DuPont for property and punitive damages, and more importantly, which we will be talking about, a recent, um, well, not recent, but medical monitoring, and it's, it's being implemented as we speak, as it turns out. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Carol. She's conducted scores of civil investigations throughout the U.S., and many resulting in million-dollar verdicts or settlements. She's a, got a business administration degree, a legal assistance degree, and she's also continuing her studies in criminal justice. She's a Florida, Florida certified investigator. She holds a designation of certified legal investigator, and she's a recipient of the Florida Certified Investigator of the Year. She's a member of many professional associations, which is how I know Carol. She's president. She's been president of both the Northwest Florida Legal Professionals Association, the Northwest Florida Staff Legal Investigators, and she was the national director of the National Association of Legal Investigators. She's also very active in the community environmental protection and has served as executive director of River Keepers in Northwest Florida for over a decade. So she's a staff legal investigator and paralegal for the Florida Levin Papantonio Law Firm, and she's been there 29 years. Levin Papa Levin, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up, Carol. Levin Papantonio is the firm who successfully litigated Prine versus DuPont on behalf of more than 7,000 residents. So. For decades, DuPont's zinc smeltering plant produced layers of contaminated waste. It created a 100-foot, if you can imagine this, a 100-foot tall, noxious dust mountain in this tiny town of Spelter, West Virginia. It was one of the largest zinc smelter facilities in the United States. This dust, this contaminated dust, permeated neighborhoods and infiltrated the West Fork River that surrounded the entire facility. This toxic air emissions and the dust from the operation of this smelter facility just created a medical nightmare for scores of local residents exposed to potentially harmful byproducts of, if you can imagine, arsenic, cadmium, and lead. And we all have heard stories about the effects of those products on certainly developing children, if not other, you know, as other people. So 10 residents filed an environmental class action suit in 2004 known as Perrine, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Carol, Perrine versus DuPont, on behalf of themselves and others against the responsible companies 
for the property damage as medical monitoring and punitive damages. So Carol's joining me today to tell the story of her investigation of this extremely complicated case that ended in a very remarkable outcome, actually. Hi, Carol. Well, good morning, Francie. Uh, let me thank you for having me on the show. Oh, and well. also, uh, just let me tell you right off, I know you're in California, so I'm going to say right up front, I don't always buy into everything that comes out of Hollywood. But that movie about Aaron Brockovich did demonstrate to Americans the difficulty in pursuing these environmental cases. And, yeah. uh, and while I don't look anything like Julia Roberts, I can <laughs> attest that these are difficult and time-consuming endeavors. And to prove an environmental case takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and some really good luck. And Carol, you're, you're, you're mentioning the Aaron Brockovich movie, which was actually entitled Aaron Brockovich. That was the case out of Hinckley, California, that was contaminated waste from a Pacific Gas and Electric Company. That is correct. And I've personally met Erin Brockovich, and I, I know she inspired a lot of people. But I can say as the lead investigator for Levin Papantonio, uh, it's not exactly as magical as it appeared on that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Now, so Carol, this, I mean, I know that you put a lot of work in this case before it was ever filed. When did you actually start working on the case? Well, it's interesting because I think if you, you know, as, as an investigator, that it's always going to be boots on the ground, and that's always my step number one. But we got a call, I would say, around uh, 2003, 2004, from a woman who had lived by this plant for years and years, and her husband had actually worked in the plant. And she was concerned because she'd stood by this plant all these years, and one day she looked out at her kitchen window, as most of us would do, and watched her grandchildren play, and she saw these workers right across the fence, 100 feet from her grandchildren, and they were all dressed in what we call space boots, space suits, Tyvek suits, respirators, had all the safety equipment on, and she ran out there and said, what's going on? And, of course, they tell her everything's fine and, and don't worry, we're taking care of this and there's nothing you worry about, go back in the house. And uh, months later, uh, she sees these same people in her neighbor's yard and she goes like, wait a minute, now you're in, my, now you're in our yards, what's going on? They again tell her, DuPont and the West Virginia DEP tell her, oh, Miss Perrine, you go on back in your house, everything's fine. The contamination stops at our fence. Don't worry about your yard. And she was just so upset about that that she called us and said, I think there's something more here. Mm-hmm. And that's basically how we got involved. Wow. And this, we were talking about Lenora Perrine, right? Yes, Lenora yeah. Perrine. She's the lead class rep in the case Perrine versus DuPont. And she was... Uh, you know, she was just a quiet housewife that had worked a little bit at a, a, a kind of a merchandise store, and and yet she was smart enough and had the insight to say, "I need to go ask about this. I want to do it not just for her, but her community." And the suits you're talking about, or the gear that you're talking about that they're wearing, are like the hazmat suits. Absolutely. That- yeah, absolutely. Okay. The hazmat suits, and you can imagine if you looked out your kitchen window and saw across the fence, a hundred feet from your children, men with hazmat suits on and respirators, and they're telling you nothing is a problem. She said in her mind, "Then why have you got the hazmat suit on?" <laughs> right, and and why does it stop at the property line? Right. Which is, 
just comical. So, so the dust from this man, this smelter plant. Now, this this plant had been around for ninety years, right? That's correct. Back in early nineteen hundreds, the uh, Dupont Company built this plant. They designed, developed this zinc smeltering plant. They claimed it to be the largest in the world. And basically what they did, when they used smeltering production, it creates a byproduct. And what they did with the waste, they just kept stacking it up on this mountain. And DuPont was the one that created this toxic mountain that continued to smolder and burn for a 100 years. And it emanated this this awful toxic dust that went in the homes and across the fields and the lands of these people. And it's amazing that in 2001, this plant still operated, this waste site still sat there, and it also ran and leached into the West Fork River where many children and fishermen tried to, you know, use it for recreation. So it was just shocking that America would have this kind of blight in it after all these years in a modern country like America is. Well, and I've seen the pictures, Carol, um, and it, it is amazing because uh, the picture, the one picture that I saw, it is smoldering. I mean, it, it's it's still hot. It's still giving off fumes. And, of course, the dust is loose, and so it blows everywhere. I, I saw some uh, pictures of the dust actually blowing off the mountain in the surrounding area. Absolutely, and and that's what a good investigator would would find. In other words, you're talking to the investigator who boots on the ground, went out and talked to these people, home after home, former plant worker after plant worker, to learn that the, the community had cancers, they had lung problems, and so I went over to the West Virginia DEP, that's Department of Environmental Protection Agency, and I pulled their files and I looked at all these historical documents. And I found these pictures both in homes and in and agencies, and I was just shocked to see that this had been known, had gone on, had been moralized for years, and yet nothing was nothing was done until Miss Perrine sees the hazmat suits in her backyard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so that's. Um because it was known, that's why there were punitive damages. Is that right, or it was because there was a cover-up? Well, it, it's because it was known. And there was a, uh, a study done in 1919 by two investigators that looked into this. Now, you're thinking 1919, they probably weren't that sophisticated, but, but they had work to solve what was the mystery why were the cattle dying why were the why were there stillborn calves why were all the crops dying and DuPont knew the study was out there it's called the 1919 study and they had it in their museum and what it basically proved that these toxins were killing the cattle and causing the crops to die back in 1919 so here all these years you're saying that DuPont had this in their museum Absolutely. They have the Hagley Museum in Wilmington, Delaware, is where they house all their historical documents. And, and there it's set. And, and they knew that this was a problem. And it went on and on and on. And then we discovered it and said, wow. And, you know, we put that in front of a jury and said, in 1919, they knew this plant was a problem. So well, no Go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying, I'm looking at some documentation you provided me, Carol, about the 1919 investigations. And, and in 1919, according to your document here, uh, there was 
two million pounds of dust and uh, almost a million pounds of uh, zinc. Right. And 54,000 pounds of lead, right, then, in 1919. Uh, absolutely, and and that and that was just the you know that was the early days. So this continued to build. That's why you ended up with a hundred foot mountain on 125 acres in the wild and wonderful state of West Virginia. Yeah, and you know, I mean, West Virginia. Interesting enough, I was looking at the background of West Virginia. You know, um, they're they're the state that seceded from Virginia. <laughs> you know, right. they're the state of where the Harper's Ferry battle was fought and they've been around since the 1700s so so they have a really um interesting colorful history but i also saw that there's been a lot of mining accidents there a lot of contaminated air other areas besides besides this one Absolutely, and, and let me tell you how this site was discovered because it's a very interesting story. One I learned as an investigator when I was boots on the ground, as I say. Yeah. The late Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia, who mm. probably is one of the finest you know, senators. Carol, let me let me interrupt you for a second before you start into that. I've just been notified we need to take a quick break. If you don't sure. know that story. Carol Moore, the lead investigator on the West Virginia class action suit against the DuPont Company, will be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Legal investigator and paralegal for Levin Papatonio has joined us today from Pensacola, Florida. Carol, you were just telling us the story. Absolutely. Uh, Senator Robert Byrd, the late Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia, one of the finest senators to ever serve, he wanted to bring business and new commerce in the state of West Virginia. And one of the plans that he wanted to bring was a new branch office for the FBI. So he and his team got in a, a plane, a helicopter, and they flew over Harrison County. And Bird looked down and he saw this horrible life. He saw this 100-foot mountain. He saw it leaching the West Fork River. And he said, my goodness, I'll never convince the FBI to move a branch here with this. So he called the United States Environmental Protection Agency and he said, I want this addressed immediately. And surprising enough, this site had gone virtually unseen, unclean, unremediated all those years. And the United States EPA comes in and says, whoa, we do have a problem. So that's when, after that, they connected with the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection Agency and said, you know, what's going on here? And, of course, that forced them to go out and look. And that's when Ms. Perrine sees them all in her backyard. Mm, wow. So then the soils... Um, testing that was done. They did soil testing, but did your firm also have soil testing done? Yes, here's exactly what happened. When they told Ms. Perrine that there was no need to test soil beyond her yard and that everything stayed over the fence, then we, <laughs> we, uh, we just, that didn't make sense to us. It just defied all common sense. And, you know, we knew that it, we'd seen enough documents to know there'd been some samples taken in, you know, off sites and other places as far as away as a half a mile. And, and these four constituents showed up, arsenic, cadmium, lead, and zinc. And that's not something you would find naturally everywhere together. So we hired a uh, somebody to do some modeling and say, you know, the way this plant was ran and the way the wind rose blow, this would have had to disseminate across this class area, maybe even much as three miles. So myself as the lead investigator put together a sampling team and for six long months from the heat of summer until the dead of winter in the snow, I went door to door, gained side access, and we took over a thousand soil samples of the residents in the Spelter area. And this, we learned, went way beyond the Spelter community. It went into outlying communities. And then we thought, well, you know, if it's on the soil, then it's got to be in the homes. Sure. And we started going from home to home, and we sampled 100 homes in the attics, 
door jams, places that people can't normally clean. And, and we were stunned to find the high rates and the high levels of arsenic, cadmium, lead in these homes. And someplace that I read, Carol, um, there was a, a location that I, I think I think it was you guys that decided maybe would be the control sampler or what, maybe it was the government. They decided, went so far out and decided that area would be the control sample, and it turned out it was just as contaminated as what they were already testing. Absolutely. We were trying to find – you always want to do a comparable place where you can say, well, the natural background levels are this, so let's see how it compares. Because there is, and we have to all admit, there are some natural occurring areas of arsenic, but it's a different of a natural occurring level and a level that's put there by man. So our expert said, well, you know, I, let me use this area. Maybe it was a mile, mile and a half from the plant, and, and his control area had the level. So that's when we continued our air modeling and learned that this had gone much farther, that it had emanated for 100 years, and we had and we did another ex- expansion of the class and pulled in a lot more residents. And, and we're, we're grateful today because we know that these homes will be cleaned at, through this program, and we also know that these people will be eligible for medical monitoring so that their diseases that these constituents lead to, these are constituents that cause latent diseases. They're carcinogenic substances that cause lung cancer, kidney problems, all kinds of, of neurological problems for children in their development years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And so what do they do, Carol, to clean the soil? How, how does that happen? Well, there are different areas, obviously. The levels of contamination, the closer you are to plant, the more stringent level of cleanup you'll need. They actually will do a, a scrape and replace. In other words, they'll scrape away so many layers of feet of soil, and they'll have to come in and bring new soil. They'll actually do, they'll come into some of the homes. Some of the homes, the carpets are going to be ripped up. The attics will have to be totally renovated. They'll be, you know, Deep cleaning of furniture, just a tremendous amount of effort will have to go in to make sure these homes are are clean. Um, and and you know some of it will be to help people learn about you know not tracking in during the the process of the cleanup and and but literally carpets and furniture and all these things are going to have to be remediated so that there's no harm for people in the future. Mm-hmm. And what and what about the mountain? Where is it? Is it still there? Well, that's the interesting thing. Is the mountain is totally gone, and it's under huh. what wasn't carried off. It's under a big tarp. And when you look at our sampling, um, if you look at where the mountain was, it's it's all it's the cleanest area of the entire area now. It's the zero level of contamination. And you look at Miss Perrine's yards and the other yards, and it's the hot spot now. So, Dupont had to do a remediation and and then they said well we're stopping here all oh, the neighborhood's fine and only through the efforts of the investigator and and fortunately this Levin Papantonio law firm has the resources and the money for us to continue to fight the battle for the people and now DuPont's paying for the remediation and the medical monitoring of these yards that should have actually been done a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. And and where did they take the contaminated dirt? Where does it go? Well, some of it is under this big uh, cap, they call it. It's an environmental cap, and, it, and some of it's going to be there forever. It's basically a lot of it's buried, and the other portions of it are carried off to sites 
you know, in, in Arizona and other places where there's, it's, they're proved like Superfund dump sites. But uh-huh. the majority of it still sits in, in West Virginia under this large cap. And mm-hmm. that particular land will never be developed as residential property, thank goodness. Interesting. And it's been, and it's been capped where no longer does it flow into the West Fork River. Wonderful. That's great. So, Carol, tell us, would you, the elements of a class action suit? Well, the elements... I mean, I know that. Yeah. You know, in a class action suit, and you take a look at this, there's approximately seven to 8,000 people who qualify for either remediation or property owners or their medical monitoring or their children. And if... And if we tried to bring 8,000 lawsuits in a state court in West Virginia, well, most of us wouldn't live to see the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So there is an, an, a, a potential effort to bring a class action, which if the people's claims are common to, to each other, in other words, everybody had exposure, everybody's property was, was contaminated, then you can bring it as a class action. And mm-hmm. then, then you can use class representatives. And that was part of my job as an investigator to, you know, look and go through the area and say, you know, we need a young mother to represent the interest of children. We had Miss Perrine who represented somebody who lived there for a long time. We had somebody in another community that says, well, I don't live by the plant, but I live, you know, a mile and a half away, and I want to bring the interest of that group. So these class reps sit in the foot of these or the steps and bring this case on behalf of all 8,000 of their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's an efficient use of the court time. You have one trial that establishes liability and damages and punitives, and you don't have 8,000 trials. And in this case, I'm assuming that your law firm took it on a contingency initially? We sure did. We spent uh, $10 million. Uh, we wow. were joined by the, uh, the Cochrane Law Firm, and we spent $10 million pursuing this case, which we upfronted the money. We paid for the, you know, the experts. We paid for all this testing. And... Uh, you know, basically put our money into it and, you know, paid interest and all the things you do when you when you have to put money into a case. And it, it takes a large law firm. I, I know that's true because I've seen attorneys, uh, law firms go out of business and file bankruptcy because they tried to do a class action and they couldn't fund it. Absolutely. And if you read the book, The Legal Action with Jan Slickman, you'll see that you can lose your business, your home, your sanity in these type of cases. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so at this point in time, you have um, you, you do have the process. They are they are doing the cleanup. They've done the mountain. They, are they actively pursuing cleaning up the residences in their property? When that was part of what the jury awarded to this residents of this class area, they awarded fifty five point six million for remediation, which includes soils and homes. Okay. They, uh, they they awarded the medical monitoring program, which is about a hundred and thirty million dollar program, and then they of course awarded one hundred ninety eight million in punitives. So the good thing is, there's a eventually the case has gotten resolved, and there's a special master. His name's Ed Gentle, and he sits today with an office and offices in the class area, in which people can go and get qualified and bring their documents in and say. You know, I'm part of this class. I'd like to have my home remediated, or I'm bringing my children. I'm bringing my 
family, we want to enter in the medical monitoring program. So Ms. Perrine has lived to see the, the success of her efforts and her concern for her neighbors. Which is wonderful, and as we were talking on the break, uh, I'm, you know, I'm just sure, knowing people, that she has, she's taken a lot to pursue this. I'm sure there were people that weren't, weren't pleased about her pursuing this lawsuit against DuPont, particularly DuPont. Absolutely, and it's interesting because, as, as true with most cases, the first thing that many people did in DuPont also was, you know, they went after Ms. Perrine. They they asked her for her medical records. They went through everything, every bit of her life. They asked her all about her children. They asked her, her about, you know, who she'd been married to, uh, where she had worked, anything they could do to make it look like, well, you know, this was, this, this is something that, you know, like, like she was a fraud or she was just mm-hmm. trying to do something. And, you know, she just could not be a finer woman and a finer person for, for us to represent. And they basically, you know, people in the community called her and said, what are you doing? You're going to make make all this a big problem. And it's not a big problem. Right. Well, no, it's just a 100-foot mountain of toxic right. waste yeah. problem. It's a pretty big problem. <laughs> okay, it's time for another break, Carol. Back in a couple minutes. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News, opinion, can you hear me? Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest, Carol Moore, is a woman who's the lead investigator for the Perrine versus DuPont contaminated waste case from West Virginia. And I'm so happy to have her here today. And Carol, you know, I'm just wondering, um, you started this in 2004, and it's just really getting resolved with the medical monitoring now. Do you have any idea how many hours you have put in on this case? Oh, easily 10,000 hours. and And you know, as an environmental investigator, you know when you get a call that it's going to be a long, arduous task. And so you can't look at this as an eight-to-five job. you got to look at it as a mission that you're on, that, that these people are counting on you to get to the bottom. And our firm looks at hundreds of these cases, and we only take a very select few. And mm-hmm. my job is to be the investigator that goes out and helps select these type of cases. So I know that I'm going to spend, you know, 180 days easily a year in Spelter, West Virginia, when we take this case on. So you're talking about six months um, in West Virginia in an area that you know is contaminated. Well, that's not fun. I know. I often say maybe I probably qualify for medical monitoring myself <laughs> at this point. So, so do you think, uh, you? I, I'm sure you spent six months there the first year. Did that follow the next succeeding years? Absolutely, because as this thing developed, I mean, this is a story you're going to go back and develop a hundred years of history. And as this developed, you're, you're going to see witnesses that you need to talk to. And, and our firm prides itself in that we we don't leave any stone unturned. And every witness name that came up, it was my job to go find and and talk to these people. I took my camera everywhere I went, and I probably have a library of easily five or six thousand photographs. That depict every every home, every inch of that mountain, all the remediation steps, because you want to build a picture when you get in front of the jury of how this went on. And as we all know, uh, juries now love pictures and video, and so that's part of the job of an investigator as well. And what did you run into when you contacted people? Were they aware that it was happening? Do you had did you have to educate them what was going on there? Absolutely. Most people were unaware, and they just said, well, we've seen it over there, and, you know, everybody always assured us it was fine. But I heard these stories like, well, the, the opacity, and that means the, the ability for it, whether it's a picture of whether it's a clear day or a real foggy day in California or a real smoggy day. And that same kind of phenomenon works in West Virginia. And they would say, you know, some days that smoke would be so bad they close the school. Or I can remember my mother hanging laundry on the on the on the uh, hangers outside, and the laundry would get all this stuff on it. She'd have to go wash it again. And all these incidental stories. Well, they didn't know it was harmful. They knew that you know that it, it had been emanating for all these years, and they mm-hmm. knew they would tell me how their children played on this mountain in areas where it wasn't smoldering, and that there was no fence, and these guys would go ride their four wheelers and and all these children were being exposed because it, they thought it was all innocent because that's what they'd been told. Of course. So, Carol, how did – this is a long time. This is 2011. That was, you started in 2004. How did you stay motivated? This is exactly what happened. I, when I started this sampling team, we went into this home, and there was this darling, beautiful little girl. She was two years old, 
pretty gold blonde curly locks on her head, blue eyes, and she had gotten sleepy, and she'd lay down on the floor. And I looked at her, and she just kind of smiled, and then she fell off to sleep, and that smile locked into my mind. And we tested her home, and when we got the test results back, the expert and I looked at the high levels of arsenic, and lead, and especially lead, and said, we have to get this child out of this house or get this home cleaned up. And I knew because of the economic circumstances I'd seen there that the best chance she had was for us, that we weren't, her parents weren't going to be able to afford to leave that home. So when I got hot or I got tired or I wanted to go home, I would say, but that little girl's still laying in that house. And that kept me going year after year after year because, as we all know, we could be that little girl. It could be our grandchild, our child. Yeah. And that's what kept me going. Amazing. Now, so so let's talk a little bit about the medical monitoring. Um, I, I know that you're not actively involved in it now, even though you've got it set up. But it looks like they're having town meetings and that people can go there, um, the residents can go there and uh, ask their questions, even if they're not in the class, um, the class action itself. They can go there and ask questions. And uh, if they're, from what I'm reading here, if you register for the class action, um, you get a $200 payment just simply for registering. Well, you know, the thing is, is that everybody there that's a part of this medical monitoring class is going to have to take off time to go to the doctor. They're going to have to, they're going to have to take their children. They're going to, it's, it's, it's not like, it's not, it's not something that, you know, it's going to take some time because you've got to go in, you've got blood work, you've got whatever that fill out. And the thing we all want is for people to participate. So that money can be used to help cover those expenses, help cover the, the you know, the, the, the cost of gas, the cost of being off work. That's an incentive for these people to come participate. We want, you know, literally everyone that participate because we know diagnosis of a cancer, the earlier diagnosis, the better chances of people to survive those cancers. And exactly. so... You know, and the quicker these people get in and look to see what do they have, the more lives will be saved. Well, and it also looks like that uh, if you've lived, the zone, it's divided into zones. Correct. So if you've, if you've lived one year in zone one, which is the close, the closest to the mountain, correct? That's like where Lenora Perrine lived, right okay. next to it. So if you've lived one year in zone one, three years in zone two, how far is zone two out? Do you know? That would probably cover the next quarter mile or to a half mile. Okay. Or two to five years in Zone 3. And if you've lived there, those periods of time, I think since 1966. And, and let me tell you why the 1966 is important. Because these diseases are latent. So as you and I both know, but not, not everybody in the world knows, that you can be exposed to... Uh, a chemical day after day, year after year, and doesn't mean next week, you could be exposed this week, doesn't mean next week you're going to have cancer, but that ex- long-time exposure is going to continually uh, accumulate and bioaccumulate in your body, and at some point in time, 10 years, a decade, 20 years, 30 years, or 40 years, that cancer will develop, and right. that's why it goes back to 1966, and that's yeah. why we know that these people have a you know, it's a it's a pretty good uh, risk 
it's very high risk that they will have some of these diseases. And the medical monitoring, medical monitoring that is paid for by DuPont provides a voluntary physical screening to anybody that qualifies um, every two years after this year for 30 right. years, for a total of 30 and, years. Absolutely. And again, that's something that the Levin Papantonio Law Firm and our medical experts and our team put together. Part of these high levels that I found in the testing along with the rest of the team is what drives that program because we know these are levels that if exposed to over year after year, which these people have been, and as long as these homes are cleaned up, this exposure continues, so that mon medical monitoring program goes out into the future. It's not just a one-time, you know, okay, you're fine, go home. It is a continual medical monitoring program, which is one of the very, I think it's an outstanding program, one of the best in the nation. It's fabulous. It's just great that you were able to, to get that. And I, w I was interested that there, there wasn't, uh, damages awarded for people who had already developed problems. It, it only applied to the property cleanup, the punitive damages, and the medical monitoring. That's correct. Uh, personal injury and wrongful death cases are cannot be tried in a class setting. That, and the reason is, is that you know a personal injury is very, very particular. I mean. You, you, there may be one cancer of this type and another cancer of that type. And the other thing, it, a wrongful death and a personal injury claim, the damages of are particular to that person. You know, whether they had huge medical bills, whether they had loss of income, and those are things you have to do one-on-one. -on -one. Now, we focused on the big picture, the property mm -hmm. damages and trying to, trying to stop the continued exposure for a mass of 8,000 people or more. I mean, we truly at this point, you know, with all these children and, and people having relatives live with them that we wouldn't know about, this may actually go beyond the 8,000 prediction. Sure. So, um, so the people that have specific personal injury claims, the class action doesn't preclude them from filing their own claim against DuPont. No, you know, they, everybody has their day in court. Now, you know, if somebody is interested, they, you know, because I'm, I'm not an attorney, so I don't want to give any type of legal advice or pretend mm -hmm. that I've got that, that uh, expertise. So people that have our concern need to go hire them a private lawyer, ask it and discuss it with them so that they get the right legal information. Um, you know, there, there are firms in West Virginia, I'm sure, that will be glad to help them and look at individual cases. Right, yeah. And as far as the medical monitoring, it's, it's fairly simple. For people over 15 years of age, the exam consists primarily of blood and urine tests, and children under 15 will only have a blood test. So we're not talking about a lot of time uh, to do these physical screening exams. No, and we're, not talking, and we're not talking real invasive tests. Now, right. you know, so that, it, you know, it's not something that people should be as scared of. They should embrace it and say, you know, I've got some incentive to go. It's, it's protective, it's progressive, it's proactive into human health and safety. And it looked like it was pretty easy to prove eligibility if they had um, something with their name and that address on it, bills, passports, Department of Motor Vehicle Records, public assistance, tax records, anything that showed utility bills, anything that showed that they 
were at that address. And uh, school like records. And school, school records. records. You know, bring yeah. the school records. Okay. We need to take another break, Carol. Um, Carol Moore, 29-year veteran, is here with us today. More on Carol and the status of Perrine versus DuPont. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. You're listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Carol Moore, as I mentioned, a 29-year veteran investigator for Levin Papantonio, the law firm from Florida who obtained a class action verdict on behalf of 7,000 residents of Spelter, West Virginia. And Carol, I just um, just while we were coming back from the break, I just found this um, this I guess it's an email that uh, you uncovered, maybe through discovery. This is signed by Bill, um, and l- let me just read it because I think this sounds like it. One of the reasons it really got the punitive damages. It says, "Team, I think we have to be careful about discussing a long-term solution at this site." At our last meeting with EPA, they said that this is all they want us to do, and that is why we're going forward with the order. We could end up spending a great deal of money at this site with no real benefit. I propose, this is underlined, I propose we plan on doing as little as possible to comply with the order, and the site may just go away. Signed, Bill. That truly was one of the most scathing and un 
professional, uncaring emails that I saw in this case. And, you know, how DuPont thought this 100-foot mountain would just go away is is just incredible. And that's, that goes to the state of mind of a company. And often an investigator's job is to look at the state of the mind. And, and was this truly a story of profits and money over the health and safety of people? You know, I'll let the the audience be their judge on that just much as the jury was and you can't help but think when the jury saw that type of conduct that's why they awarded the 180 million dollar mm-hmm. punitive award yeah I, I would I would think so if I were sitting on a jury and listening to that information presented that came right from the mouths of one of a person in charge at the company I think that would make me angry Absolutely, and and there were other stories that made the jury angry. I'll, I'll tell you one that was pretty scathing, and if you've read John Grissom's book that has to do with the C8 uh, Teflon investigation that was done in another place real close on the Ohio River, which also interplayed into our case, you'll, you will know the story of how Craig Skaggs, who was DuPont's public relations person, actually had an ex parte conversation and for people who don't know, those are strictly unethical, prohibited. You cannot go to a Supreme Court justice and discuss some type of case matter and law matter that's pending in front of the Supreme Court. But Craig Skaggs wrote a scathing email about how he personally had a conversation conversation with Supreme Court, Court Justice Spike Maynard and that how Spike Maynard told him that he was going to cast a dissenting vote so that medical monitoring would not be in West Virginia and that he would fax or send ahead of time to Craig Skaggs his opinion so Craig Skaggs could share it with DuPont. Now, you know, we, we try to believe and hope in America these things don't happen, but mm-hmm. there set that email in front of this jury. And, and, and then, you know, we had this other story. This is one I developed personally myself as an investigator. You look at what is... What, what's the motivation? You always have to look what motivates people for things to happen. And the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection Agency had a chief director. Her name was Stephanie Timmermeyer. And Ms. Timmermeyer, she signed off on DuPont and West Virginia DEP not testing Ms. Perrine's yards and all these other yards. And you go like, well, why would she do that? Well, I went back and looked. And I'm not saying that she's a bad person. I'm just saying, well, let's just hear what happened. You go back and look at Stephanie Timmermeyer's history, and she first worked for Potesta, who was a contractor to DuPont, and they were working on this very site while she worked for Potesta. Then she went to work for a law firm who represented DuPont against the C8 problem in Ohio. Then she goes, she's appointed by the governor to be the chief of the West Virginia DEP, and what does she have oversight of? The Smelter West Virginia plant and their mediation thereof. And you wouldn't, go, wouldn't she have had to declare that as a conflict? No. And, and that's the thing that we have to, in the United States, realize that these things do happen. Mm-hmm. And until we put the story together, the story never came out. Now, I will tell you, I'm not saying she resigned because of this, but right around the time of this trial, she stepped down as the director of the West Virginia DEP. So you never know as an investigator. You read and hear stories and go, oh, that can't be true. But yes, they can be true. And you never know as an investigator what you're going to un- uncover that would may show some slight edge to a company or to or why something maybe just got overlooked or, or why it was a little easy to do something and why maybe it didn't get followed to the nth degree. 
And Carol, how did this, the information about the ex parte conversation with the Supreme Court Justice, how did that get uncovered and, and disclosed? Actually, you know, and the one thing investigators have to have, you have to have continual relationships with other investigators and continual relationships with other law firms. And I called another law firm and I said, we're doing this case against DuPont. I've looked and saw you did this case against DuPont. Do you have anything in your documents that might be helpful? And he shipped me a box overnight and over, we were taking the, their lead counsel's deposition the next day, I stayed up all night and I went through this box and there sent this email that DuPont had to produce and was just hoping that no one would find. Wow. That's amazing. And I've seen, do you know, do you know how many bankers boxes you have of materials? Because I've seen the picture and they're to the ceiling of your office. I can just tell you that we took 200 boxes to trial and we didn't take everything we had. We left some home and, and we had hotel rooms stacked with boxes of documents. Amazing. And did you, were you there through the whole trial? Absolutely. I left home around August the 14th and I came home right on the eve of Halloween, October, late October. And didn't come home the entire time. We worked night and day because, you know, we have a job and responsibility, these clients and these people. And it's, you know, we always say we can rest after trial, but trial is the most important thing we do for these clients. Yeah. So, again, I was gone from the beginning of August to the end of October. And then I, I did see that there, there seems to have been a, a dispute on the, on the punitive damages and whether a portion of those punitive damages should be used for the medical monitoring. And has that been resolved finally? All of those issues have been resolved. Uh, and the, uh, basically what happened, the case ended up settling, and then there were just certain amounts of money allocated to take care of things. So whether it came out of the punitive pot or this pot or that pot really wasn't relevant anymore. And, yeah. and honestly, this case could have been continued through the Supreme Court. It could have been continued for a long time. And all the parties agreed that we need to get down to business of taking care of their mediation and the medical monitoring because Mrs. Perrine and her neighbors needed that. That's and, it, right. and sometimes it's not so much about that, you know, who, who sings the victory or who does the last lap, but it's about taking care of people. That's true. And Carol, I thank you so much uh, for sharing this with us today. It's a fascinating case. I know we could talk more for hours. I'd love to hear more about it too, but I need to close the show. Um, I do want to send a shout out though to our technical folks at Voice America um, who make this show possible. Ryan Treasure, VP of Broadcast Operations, and the wonderful engineers Mike and Chad. Next week, August 18th, will be criminal profiler, investigator, and expert witness Brent Turvey. August 25th will be Dr. David Greenberg, who will be talking about heroin and its effects on our youth. So tune again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.